Hey, welcome to Unmistakably Star Wars and this round of Star Wars On Tap, where we get to sit down with Star Wars fans from across the galaxy. We get to share in their Star Wars experience. And today's episode, it's like happy hour. It's a two-for-one double shot because we are sitting down with the producer and director of this fantastic fan film that came out a short time ago, The Birth of a Monster. And of course, I'm talking about not only Tim Martin, but also Alec Eskander and gentlemen. Welcome to Unmistakably Star Wars. <laughs> Thanks for having us, man. Absolutely, guys. It is our absolute pleasure. Listen, of course we're going to talk about your phenomenal film that was released. But before we do that, I want to actually jump in the way, way back machine. And, and let's talk about that first Star Wars experience for both of you. Tim, let me begin with you. Tell us about that time that Star Wars really reached in and grabbed your heart and, and just refused to let go. Well, um, I'm in my early 40s. So when... Star Wars first came out, I was only two, but I do remember seeing um, Empire Strikes Back in the drive-in theater. Oh, wow. If you wow. don't know what that is, you're too, you're too damn young. <laughs> um, so the drive-in theater uh, was my first experience actually watching Star Wars on the big screen. And of course, you know, as a, was I four or five at the time? I think I was five. Uh, just about to turn five. That's right. It, you know... It's hard to describe. It's just like, wow, what is this? You know, but I, I was raised with that. So to me, that was my my sense of normality was, oh, this, this is what movies are. This is, you know, they only get better from here. Um, <laughs> time would show that that wasn't exactly yeah, true. Seriously. Strikes back, you know. But, um, yeah, so, you know, of course, I was like seven or eight when Jedi came out. And um, even as a kid, I, I you know, being a... a uh, an independent filmmaker now, when I was a kid, I would study movies and go, how'd they do that? You wow. know, I know this is fake, but it, it feels so real. Why does it feel so real? And that, that's the impact of what Star Wars has had on me as a child. And even now, it's like it still feels so real. And it's just actually someone's vision of artwork. Oh, and I like that, that. That's really to the testament of George Lucas and, and the, you know, Irvin Kirshner and, and uh, Richard Marquand. Those directors, they brought their own little take on those films, and it's a piece of artwork that has changed the world. Mm. So it's like everyone who's probably listening to this podcast, it has somehow greatly affected your life. Um, and for me, it was like it was Luke Skywalker. It was like good versus evil. It's you know, it's it's the basic core story of Star Wars, which was struggle, you know. Wow, Tim, so well said. I love the fact that you're looking at this from a perspective of art. And and now you guys are the artisans, so we'll definitely come back to that in a moment and talk about that. But before we do, Alec, let me throw it your way. Tell us about that first Star Wars experience that really reached in and, and grabbed your heart. So uh, I'm I'm a little bit younger. I was born in 85, uh -oh. so I'm, I'm uh -oh. pushing 34. Uh, <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> uh, no, but I, I grew up watching the original trilogy on VHS um, in, in my basement and wearing out those cassette tapes, like a lot of us, even those who watched in the theater as kids. But I have a really, really vivid memory. Um, and I think the best way to put it is it's kind of like early M. Night Shyamalan films. I, I don't want to compare Star Wars to M. Night Shyamalan, but the, the earliest memory I have of Star Wars is when when Darth Vader, and we all know this, mm. but when Darth Vader told Luke he was his father, I remember as a kid being like, "Yeah, what? yeah. <laughs> how is that? How is that 
possible. And it like blew my mind that movies could do that. And, uh, you know, ever since then, I was, you know, just so enamored by storytelling. Um, as a kid, I was out running around <laughs> stealing parents' cameras and making movies with my friends. Um, and that really, that really stuck with me and why I've always been such mm. a huge Star Wars fan is because of that emotion that it brought out of me in, in really just film in general. But that's what got me interested in movies. That is great. Thank you for sharing that, Alec. So now let me ask this then, because you guys sent over a bio before we began. And let me just read a quote from the bio. This is actually the last sentence of the bio. And I know you know where I'm going with this. Here's what it says. Both are huge Star Wars fans who love, all caps, the original trilogy and to disagree about most of the other films. All right, guys. So who is throwing whom under the bus? Who's right and who's wrong in this one? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, ahead, were, we were gonna we were gonna we were gonna try to avoid that even though i put that there <laughs> leave it leave it like ambiguous yeah right I'll, right i'll say the the politically correct producer thing um no i we um we both really really love star wars and and i think there's things about all the films we love i'll say this without giving too much away one of us loves all of the new stuff that Disney has done. And one of us is not a huge fan. Ah. Um, and and uh, that doesn't mean the person who doesn't like it doesn't like <laughs> all of it. It just has more strong opinions about the new trilogy. Um, so <laughs> without giving that away, we, we have many, many debates about that. Uh, and we always go back to how much we love the original trilogy. And I, I think I, I want to talk about this at some point. I don't know. I don't think this is the right point in, you know, in talking to, to bring this up, but maybe put a pin on that because I think the fact that him and I disagree and, and some of our core group of filmmakers in this project are kind of the same way is what made this project so special in hindsight. I love that. And what a great way to walk that tightrope and what a great politically <laughs> correct answer. <laughs> So let's go forward a little bit and let's go to that moment where, you know, just this fandom became bigger than just fandom where you guys actually thought, Hey, this might actually develop into some type of career for me. What, what was that moment like? Star Wars was one of my earlier introductions to a world where you had so many rich characters and different aliens and things that were very believable. And then after Star Wars alien had come out and that's, that's one of my favorite films. And, you know, I'm one of those kids. It's like, Ready Player One. Everything from the 80s was my childhood. And I still think that the greatest stuff that, you know, I still enjoy today came out of that era. Um, and so for me, growing up as a kid, I'm like, man, I love monsters. I love the Predator, you know, Robocop, all those great things. Like, it, it didn't dawn on me until, um, you know, after high school, basically, that I'm I'm like, I need to pursue this. I need to do something with this. I was, I, I was always an artist. I would draw pictures. I started sculpting when I was like 15. Um, and then I moved out to LA. I just packed up my stuff and moved out um, when I was 23. And at the time I thought, man, I've waited way too long. You know, um, now that I'm 43, I realized, <laughs> wow, I came out here when I was really young, <laughs> you know? And I moved from, uh, my father was in the army. So I moved around a ton as a kid. And uh, I ended up in Florida for high school. So I spent a couple years there. 
Um, so I moved from Florida, drove all the way across the country to Los Angeles and uh, was just beating down doors. So eventually, you know, my ch- one of my childhood heroes was uh, Stan Winston. Yes. And those of you who are for not are not familiar, who should be, uh, his company created the Terminator, Aliens, the Queen Alien, Predator, um, Pumpkinhead, so many great things hmm. um, back in the 80s. And since then... I ended up working at his studio in the early 2000s on uh, AI and um, Jurassic Park 3. Um, that was my introduction to the special makeup effects world and in my, uh, my introduction to Hollywood. So over the years, uh, for the last 20 years, that's primarily what I do is I'm a, a sculptor and a painter um, in the special makeup effects world. But what I realized eventually was about halfway through my career, I'm like, it, it wasn't it wasn't satisfying anymore. Maybe, maybe all the great characters had already been done, Hmm. but I I told myself, you know what I, you know, this is the typical Hollywood story and I'm doing the quotations in the air right now. (laughs) What I really want to do, you know, what I really want to do quotations is I really want to make films with Mm. these characters in Mm, it. Yeah. Um, so 10 years ago I, I directed a ultra low budget horror movie, um, to ended up, you know, I was on Netflix and it was uh, on DVD and I sold it some territories, but it's a super low budget movie. I look back on it with not a whole lot of pride, but <laughs> it's one of those things where it's one of the things where I accomplished something that mm. so many people in this town only talk about. Yeah, good point. Um, and from there, I'm like, well, I want to keep working in special makeup effects, but I also want to keep making films. Um, so I still do that to this day. I still work. Uh, and special makeup effects, um, creating robots and characters and monsters and stuff like that. Um, and this has been an extra push in my life because no one's just going to give you, you know, a bunch of money or even very little money and say, Hey, go make whatever you want. Mm -hmm. It it really is on your own as a filmmaker to, to really dig deep because if filmmaking were easy, everyone would be doing it. Right. It's extremely hard. Mm. Um, so with that, you know, I'm a very highly motivated person. Um, and so this film, the current project, uh, birth of a monster actually came from some rejections. Um, a good buddy of mine by the name of Steve Norrington, he, you might know him. He directed blade. Sure. Um, he kind of sent me around town with an idea that I had and it got turned down, you know, typical Hollywood story. It had gotten shot down before, but that wasn't going to stop me. Mm. Um, I just wanted to keep making movies. Even if you, even if you don't get much out of it, if you're an artist, you have to make, you have to create. Yeah. So, um, that kind of led to this current project. Tim, I love that. And thank you for sharing with those insights. I'm curious, let me follow up with you for just a moment. When it comes to the creative process, is there a difference from your perspective, whether you've got all kinds of stuff in front of you to create uh, something from scratch versus creating something to, to match somebody else's vision? I guess another way to say this is the creative process. Do you find it more challenging when you're trying to match what somebody else is telling you to do or when you start with a blank slate and just try to build what you want to get across? Um, that's a great question. Um, the, the film industry has changed so much over the years. I think everyone knows that to some degree or another. Um, even when it comes to special makeup effects, you used to find a guy, you know, oh, we know a guy that can do that. Oh, we yeah. need a werewolf. Oh, Rick Baker, he's the guy to call. Mm, yeah. Or Stan Winston, he's the guy to call. 
everything now is literally it's designed by committee and it's really frustrating that everything even down to you know because unfortunately i think george lucas had something to do with this when he you know basically had most of the rights to his his uh franchising you know the Mm -hmm. uh, uh the toy line and all that stuff now that studios realize hey every single aspect of our films even it comes down to the characters and the monsters are so valuable we're going to monetize on that and in in addition to that we're going to make sure we have a say in that so now it's like you know there's a saying if you if you design a horse by committee you get a camel (laughs) which is we get we get we we make camels all the time um and that gets really frustrating because as an artist, they don't say, hey, you know, we're working on this Star Wars thing and we need a bunch of cantina characters. So just mm. make up whatever to fill the space. It's not like that at all. Mm. Um, you know, it goes it goes through approval processes and designs and approval and approval. And it's coming from people in the, you know, the corporate part of the film industry that I think need to be they need to stay in the corporate part and kind of stay out of the artistic part. Um, because a lot of the artistry has really taken a hit, mm. um, and I've you know that's that's the negative side. I've yeah. had I've had some really good experiences. Um, like very recently, um, I was asked at the company that I worked for at the time to uh, design the character for of uh, Rodan for the new Godzilla two. Wow! So um, I'm not someone who does ZBrush. I don't do computer uh, design work. I do everything sculptural so i i kind of banged out this what's called a maquette which is a small sculpture of what i thought uh, i had i had a couple sketchy um little designs from another artist and i don't remember who it was because a lot of stuff was thrown at me at the time at that studio but um i think it, I, I don't want to throw any names because i could be wrong but um anyways i took sort of that but I, I really went back to the old design of rodan and kind of just extrapolated things from that and i just just banged out this this uh maquette and like less than two weeks and it was a hit mm. um michael doherty loved it it's it in the it was scanned it was created into a digital character that was augmented very slightly and then colored and that's actually what's in the film and most of the people all you know all of my peers were kind of blown away like dude you just designed the new rodan and also it wasn't it wasn't messed with a lot which mm. is completely unheard of yeah wow so we were super surprised and that's that's the flip side of that. This is a very positive thing. Like sometimes you can strike gold, but for the most part, um, you really are just kind of a mule. You're you're kind of you know, we, we call them clay pushers. You know, I'm a sculptor. <laughs> we call them clay pushers because <laughs> there's someone else always always dictating what they want and what it's supposed to look like. Mm. Um, so there's not a whole lot of personal influence anymore. So with that being said, a part of that was you know. I do a lot of stuff on my own. I do commissions. I do, you know, private artwork and stuff, which I get much more in a joint, uh, uh, enjoyment out of. Sure. But also when it comes to filmmaking, who's going to stop you? Mm, you can make yeah. whatever you want. Yeah. You know, it's like as, as the sort of, you know, coming up with the concept and as the director, you know, I, and I can let Alec go off of this one, but you know, I met Alec and we, we just had a personal love for a lot of things uh, mutually and, like, hey, let's make something together. And there's no one that's going to tell us what to do except for you and me. And yeah. that's, that's really the best thing. And, and from that kind of freedom, you can have a, a really good product. Um, 
I think a lot of times things that are so over corporate come out really muddled because they're really just trying to monetize and please everybody. So there's no, there's no heart, you know? Right. Right. I, so listen, well said. I definitely want to come back to that because you have opened a Pandora's box as far as I'm concerned with some of the things I want to ask you now. But before <laughs> we do that, Alec, let me throw it to you. you. You came out here to Hollywood. You decided to jump into the film industry. What was that decision like for you as you decided to go from fan to, to professional? <laughs> oh, that was so loaded. You have no idea. Um, it, <laughs> <laughs> as far as the, the, well, okay. So I was actually born in Hollywood. No joke. Oh, all right. Um, very, very few, very few people are from LA, um, but but my family lived in Hollywood when I was born, um, and we moved around a little bit. But but what's interesting about me, uh, what I think is interesting, I don't know if anyone else will think it's interesting. Oh, several. Things. I didn't. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I didn't even know, growing up, that getting you could get into the film, uh, getting into film. I didn't know that you could do that without being an actor. Now, that's ironic, and I must have been kind of stupid because I have an uncle, um, Bart, who is an executive director and producer at The Price is Right for like 25 years. So, like, I should have known. But I just kind of always thought, like, oh, if you want to be in the film industry, you need to be an actor. And um, so even though I was running around, as I said, with cameras with my friends and making movies and doing the 3D movie maker on the computer, I kind of took a traditional route by the time I got – um, to I got to the age of like, oh, you have to get a job. Um, and I went into corporate finance, so I didn't go to film school. And uh, I, didn't, uh, I didn't go down that road. Um, so I was actually married with a child when I, when I broke into the film industry. So when you say, who, who did I tell? It was my wife um, <laughs> at the time <laughs> when I, I had a full career, you know. Wow. Um, and I had, I had connected with some, with some guys um, who were making short films and, and they knew that I was like a, a finance guy and that I, you know, worked with numbers and mind you at the time, I didn't even know what a line producer is. I think a lot of people still to this day don't know what that is, but basically the day-to-day person overseeing the budget and, and the finances and organizing everything. And we were working on these projects. I was doing it for fun on the side with another career. Um, raising a newborn son. And then about um, two years into it, I was like, oh, God, I hate what I do so much. Mm. Um, I, I just, I hated it. I was in my, um, coming up in my mid-20s. So I, I guess that's a good time to be like, I'm out of here. You know, uh, it, it was it was overwhelming, um, definitely. It's, it's like, you know, you have a career, you, you're making money, you know, you have health benefits and then you're like, I hate what I do. I'm, I'm going to switch over to do this. And, you know, that first year as a producer, I took a huge, huge hit financially as, as many people do when they get into the film industry. Um, and, and I just let it ride and, and continued on. And now I've been, I mean, I haven't been doing it nearly as long as Tim. I've been producing for about eight or nine years, but yeah, that's essentially how I got into the film industry. I love this. And I've got to tell both of you guys right now, before we go forward, like one of the things that I'm really getting here is you guys are both so passionate about the creative process and art and just pursuing what speaks to you. And I have to say, as someone that sometimes struggles with that himself, 
how amazing is it that you guys like followed through on that and said, you know, at risk of the 401k or putting enough food on the table for the fam, like we're going to pursue something that actually breathes life into us. So my goodness, thank you for that inspiration. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. <clears throat> we both, we, we both have kids. Um, and I will definitely add to the fact that you have to have a lot of passion to work in this business. You just have to, because to this day, I've been working in this business for 20 years, and I am not a wealthy person by any means. <laughs> you know, it's just I'm a starving artist by you know all degrees of that definition. Um, but that's okay because I I enjoy what I do. Just like what Alec was saying is, you know, I've had several jobs before I moved out here. I worked at the state attorney's office in Florida. I was a bouncer at a bunch of bars. Um, geez, what else did I do? I mean, you name it. I've done all kinds of weird shit, but. Um, <laughs> Coming out here as an artist, it's it's definitely you you have to live the life you live, mm. and if you only live to work because you need this four hundred one k, how much enjoyment of that life are you going to have? Yeah. So you know, with my with my son, Daddy has monsters and toys everywhere, and he couldn't be a happier kid. You know, I don't drive an expensive car. I don't have a huge house. Um, I live. You know, pretty average, like, you know, uh, an L.A. person does. It's super expensive to live here. But it's just one of those things. Like, you, you were talking about passion. It, it takes that. It takes that to survive this business for 20 years. Yeah, and I would even I would even jump in there. You know, Tim and I, within the film industry, work in, in very different areas. I, I think this that's why this project was so special to us. Sure. I mean, by, by trade, I'm a producer, but I get asked the question, like, oh, what movies have you produced? I've been producing for um, – like I said, almost nine years, and this year will be the first time I produced a feature film. I primarily produced commercials, and you know I came up doing music videos and shorts and docs, and um, and that's how I built my career as a producer. And when you get into the film industry, I think all of us, whether we're the analytical creatives or just the creatives or whatever it might be, we're all like, oh, we want to make movies. Like that's what we want to do. Or in Tim and I's case, we you know we want to make Star Wars films or we want to make you know, alien films. Um, so we, we have these things that we do where, you know, we consider ourselves film professionals because that's what we do for a living. Um, but even within that world and us finding joy within the individual projects that we work on, Birth of a Monster was kind of like me and Tim's way of being like, you know, this is, this is what we want to do. Yes. And, and while we very well know it's it's not a perfect film. It's something we're really, really proud of. You know, in the, I guess the analytical side of me says it's part of it was like a proof of concept to be able to show, you know, as Tim talked about, um, not having everything designed by committee to show that we, as a, as a small group of filmmakers, could make something really, really special that we would love and that Star Wars fans would love. Um, that we, you know, that's what we set out to do. And, and that's really the joy. And, and in the film industry, I think a lot of filmmakers do that. You know, and they, they want to be able to further their career by doing things that they love, whether or not they are able to make money from it. And I will say just a little, like, quick shout-out. I know we're going to get more into Birth of, the Monster, but, Birth of a Monster, but, like, a shout-out to our crew from pre-production to post because, you know, our crew and our cast and these people, like, they're all film professionals. And they all worked for free, you know, because they wanted to be a part of it. Um, we didn't have that kind of budget to be able to hire everyone. People were just excited because of the story that we wanted to tell. 
Well, listen, that's a great point to just kind of pivot and talk about your film, Birth of a Monster. But before we do, Tim, I've got to ask you this because you said something, and this is the first thing that came into my mind. I have to know, with all these monsters around your house, do you and your son, do you just have the most bitchin' house on the entire block during Halloween? Do you scare the hell out of the neighborhood kids? <laughs> um, I will say this. Our Halloween costumes are the best in town. Um, <laughs> yes. I don't, I, I don't do any. I actually, like I said, I live in an apartment building, uh, and I'm on the third floor, so I don't really decorate my place. Um, but we go out, and I'd love to show you some photos sometimes of uh, of the costumes I've made for me and Xander, and they've been they've been pretty rad. Awesome. People stop us all the time for photos and stuff, and it, it's a lot of. Well, I love Halloween. It's so funny. And let me let me also just interject. I'm I'm in my office right now, Devin, and. I have a full-scale Boba Fett oh my gosh. that Tim made. You're just rubbing it in. When people walk into my office, they're freaked out because it looks like there's just some dude standing there. <laughs> um, That's it's awesome. The most, I mean, it is two-scale from Return of the Jedi. Oh, and then, killing me. Um, spoil, spoiler I should also say this. I don't know how you're going to edit this, but uh, to anyone who has not watched the uh, the short film, we would definitely want them to watch that before listening to the interview. But I bring that up. Because um, if you remember the Gamorrean guard, the one with the horns, um, I have in my office. And my wife and I are actually going to get it mounted as if it were an animal and put it over our fireplace. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, That is amazing. The the stuff that Tim creates, it's like the coolest stuff. And you're just so excited to be working with someone of his talent. And he does it. It's just bonkers. That's that's actually how... I ended up having to pay people was, you know, all the costumes in this short I made, except with the exception of the two Gamorrean guard heads. Uh, my buddy Jeff Birch had actually sculpted some years ago, but from the neck down, I built two of those entire costumes. I did the whole, again, spoiler alert. If you guys haven't seen this short yet, uh, hopefully you've seen it before you hear this, but the Bib Fortuna makeup, I sculpted that. Um, I did his whole costume, Big Boss's costume. I made her costume. Wow. I made eight complete costumes. I made that little hookah frog. Uh, nice. she smoked. Nice. I made that. Dan and I built the set. Wow. I mean, I built so much crap for this thing. <laughs> I built uh, the OTK Android. Um, you know, everyone's going to spot it because it, you know, it fits in the Star Wars world, but his body is a 3PO body. Um, so I got those parts from uh, the same guy, Jeff. Um, but the head I actually sculpted, it's a one-off. There is no mold of that. Wow. It's a one-of-a-kind head wow. that, that uh, Dan Bowman wears. Dan performs OTK, and uh, it's a one-of-a-kind. And like I said, I had to pay people with these props. So Alec owns Wait, wait, let, hold on. Let me, let me also really quickly. <laughs> no, this is, this is bananas. So to, to like, uh, I don't know if reward is the right way of putting this, but we we did our la- we did two screenings and our our last screening um, thanks to Scott Wickman one of the um, the people involved in our core team he was able to make it so we could watch it at the George Lucas Theater oh, up wow. in the Bay Area um, 3210 Studios and so we did that it was amazing and afterwards Tim it was actually Oscar night that we did our screening uh. <laughs> and Tim had made didn't tell any of us he had made basically Oscar sized um, trophies of OTK. Oh my goodness! <laughs> them to like our core team, one of the coolest things ever. Actually, if you go on Steve Bloom's um, 
Instagram, yeah. he, uh, he posted a picture of him with his Oscar OTK. It's pretty amazing. This is just incredible. Oh my gosh. Like I, I'm sitting here just trying to imagine all this stuff and I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit jealous guys, but, but, but listen, let, let's go ahead. Let's talk more about the film. Then take us to that point in time where we just kind of go from, from concept to completion. What were those initial dialogues like getting everything set up? What, what was the process itself actually like? Yeah. Let me, <laughs> let me, let oh, me hey. start this and, and you're, yeah, sure you're going to like something. Yeah, Alec, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you start, but I'm gonna precurse that with a with before I met you, okay? So before okay. I met Alec, um, I had, you know, like I said, I had gone to a couple places, pitched a story idea that I wanted to make into a film. I'm no one special, so no one's no one's gonna throw money at me, but that wasn't gonna stop me. So one of the ideas I had is I, I really want to make something with my son, mm. and my son at the time was about five years old, and I'm like I really wanted to capture him at that age and what better way to do it as a filmmaker than put him in something you're going to make wow so i i'd kicked the uh the idea around a couple times and i went to lunch with uh steve norrington and uh if anyone's familiar with his resume you know he did blade his last big film was league of extraordinary gentlemen and i was really nervous about telling him that i wanted to do this because he had a reputation years ago of being kind of a really eccentric kind of hothead guy. But the years I've known him, he's just been awesome. He's just an mm, awesome wow. dude. So I said, well, there's this thing I kind of want to work on. And I, I pitched him the idea and I, I'm not going to pretend to do a British accent. But he was like, <laughs> Oh mate, that's, that's awesome. You should do that. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, that's great. You should totally do that. I'm like, Oh, okay, shit. So I, at first I thought maybe I shouldn't do this, but then I, I, I once I kind of got Steve Norrington's approval because he thought it was a good idea, I'm like, yeah, I think I will. I think I will move forward with this. And now I'll let Alec jump in as to when I met him. Well, no, I mean, that, I think that's a perfect way to start it. it it's it, it's a bit um, it's a bit dorky, geeky, however you want to put it. But um, what, what happened was Tim and I were working on a project. We were actually working on a music video, and um, Tim was. This is doing... the first time I've met Alec. Right. So we were on set. He was doing, um, well, I don't know how, how to describe exactly what it was you were doing. You were creating this very, like, strange body cast that had, like, a, um, these, these drawers coming out of a woman. It was really, really incredible um, for some Japanese band. So the director, uh, Nick Peterson, had introduced me to Tim to hire him on this project for this specific thing. And then on set, him and I just really hit it off, talking about a lot of different things, probably not getting as much work done as we should have as we were kind of geeking out to the different things we were talking about. And, you know, I started looking at some of the stuff he'd done, and I, I was just, I was, like, enthralled by the stuff that Tim could create. So we had talked about, hey, let's get together for lunch. Let's talk about stuff we can do together. We went to lunch uh, maybe a week later after that shoot, and um, before before we left, Tim, I think he was a bit hesitant, but he was like, okay, I have this, not that he was nervous or anything, but like, I don't know if he knew that that was the right time to bring it up, but he did. He's like, I, I want to do this short film. And he told me the basic premise of Birth of, the Mon- Birth of a Monster. And I just remember like my jaw dropped and I was like, holy shit, that sounds <laughs> amazing. And he was like, yeah, I think I'm going to go and I, I – <laughs> 
don't, don't take offense to this, Tim, but he, he was like, I think I'm just going to go out to the desert and shoot it with my DP friend and my son. And, you know, I have a rough, rough outline. I was like, no, dude, you are not going to do it that way. Like, I want to do this the right way. Let's, you know, let's get a crew together. Um, let's talk to people. Let's, you know, let's make this happen. I was so excited uh, about it. And so I think from, from there, we just, we just had this like kinetic energy of like, let's, let's make this happen. I mean, mind you, this was like two years ago, a little over two years ago. Um, I then reached out to my brother, Ian, who wrote the screenplay, worked together with Tim and developing it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's like the simplistic way of, of uh, I mean, we met on set, talked about it at lunch, and then we were just super geeked to make it together. Did I miss anything, Tim? No, and, and from that point, I, I just went full throttle building stuff and building stuff and building stuff, you know, um, as Ian was writing and as you, the three of us were, you know, really kind of hammering out the story. Um, and then from there, you introduced me to Nick. Um, and Nick uh, Mahar is our director of photography. And uh, I, I love that guy from day one, just like I did Alex. So it's one of the things like this, this core group of guys, I love everybody who's worked on this and that's saying a lot because I've worked on a lot of projects in a lot of different places where you have, you know, conflict of personalities and stuff. And it's, it's really rare to get a band of brothers like this together. And that's, that's to this day, it still feels like that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, talk about the will of the force. It's amazing that you guys could come together after your first meeting and then have so much collaboration and camaraderie to, to pull this thing off. I'm curious, from the time that you guys had that conversation to the time that you guys actually premiered at the theater, how much time are we talking about from concept to completion? Yeah, so I think, I think total time, give or take, is about two hours or two hours. Yeah, it was two hours. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but, I, but I would say, you know, there, there's... There's something I want to, not that I'm like, this is not a defensive answer, but more so just explain, because really making the film would not have taken two years. Um, really what, what happened was, is, you know, getting everyone together, because everyone involved is a filmmaker and has jobs in film, you know, it was like weekend warriors. We were trying to find weekends where we were uh, able to go together, where people weren't working. So I think production just, principal photography was roughly a little less than a year maybe um and i and i want to say that was about nine or ten days total we we filmed in um in death valley which is where um there were scenes from the new hope and yeah a new hope and return of the jedi some of those scenes were filmed there so we went there twice and then like the, the cave scenes we went i want to say we went to that area was it two or three times tim no we went there we, including the scouts, oh, there was a, we there, there, five see, there was a pickup. There, there was, there was yeah. pickups too. Um, we went there five but, times. And, and that, that location is, is um, out near uh, Calco ghost town. So the, though we're all based in LA, you know, these were all, you know, multi, multi-hour um, drives to get there. And, and with a, you know, decent sized crew of any, any given time, maybe 10 to 15 people. And, and the amazing thing about it was everyone was just totally up for it. I mean, Nick, Nick is the one who brought up because we, the reveal shot of the boy when he takes his helmet off was actually a pickup from almost, almost a year after we first shot out there. Wow. Like eight months later. And like, like Alec was saying, we would shoot for a weekend. Then we had to wait like two months to shoot another weekend. And then it was another two months to shoot another weekend. 
So that's why it took over two years to finally get everything done. And Tim, you know, Tim is freaking out like, oh, my gosh, my son's going to grow a foot and have chest hair. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. I mean, from from when we first shot, that establishing shot in the beginning, my son was five and a half. And then when he takes his helmet off, he is almost seven years old. Um, Luckily, the way we shot it, the way we edited it, I, I made sure to make his hair the same, you know, and that's, believe it or not, that's a chore. I had to refer to the footage and go, oh, man, I got to cut his hair. After, you know, because he did grow continuity a couple inches. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Continuity is something that people, nobody has brought that up. Wow. So if nobody has brought it up, oh, Tim, we did I'm awesome. Sure have. There's, a, there's a pretty large comment section. I'm <laughs> kidding. Well, and, and <laughs> let me also say, Devin, that like the other part that I didn't mention to that, a really, really big chunk of that was post. And Tim and I want to give like all of the love in the world to our post team because while if you were to just, you know, pay editors and, and composers and colorists and all those people to just do it straight. Yeah. I mean, we could have, we could have done the entire thing and maybe the entire post process in maybe three, four months, but it did take about a year because we had really, really talented post-production crew working on it. Um, our composer, Aaron, seriously, such an incredibly talented composer. That was all him. Like he, that's original wow. aside from, you know, the, uh, the end credit or the, um, the end credits. He did that, and you know he's a working composer, so he had to take time out to get that done. Did an amazing job. Then you've got, you know, the sound design, um, the obviously the the editorial, which you know there was a lot of back and forth and certain things that were and weren't working. You know, the ADR sessions with with Steve, and um, yeah, so so the post production process took a long time, not necessarily because it needed to, but the same as as shooting is getting people's availability uh, to bring it all together. Well, I I mean, I'm guessing based on how you're experiencing it and describing it, that this experience and the the end product is even more rewarding than maybe you even anticipated because my goodness, so many people came together to make this happen out of pure passion and commitment. And that's, that's just something that's so rare and so beautiful. Peers and friends don't ever do anything that is someone else's intellectual property. Make up your own story. And I totally broke that rule because it started <laughs> off. I just wanted to do something fun with my kid. And what would be fun with your kid? Hey, let's make a Star Wars thing. And when I came up with the concept and I shared it and people were just really into it, I'm like, well, I'm totally going backwards on what I said. <laughs> you know, um, let's, let's do a Star Wars short. But we've never had the disillusion that we were going to profit from this or anything like that. It, it's a fan film. And, you know, again, I, I will – really have to emphasize the word passion. It is a passion project because everybody who did it, uh, who worked on this, you could, you could feel it. I mean, mm. they just love star Wars so much yeah. that like I said, people were coming like Patrick Lumberg was one of our, uh, he's our first AD, Nick Mahar and Scott Wickman were all from the Bay area. And some of those guys would drive down from San Francisco down to LA, then over to Barstow where the Calico ghost mines were the cave scenes uh, to shoot for just a couple hours during the day. Wow. I mean, that was, that's, that's commitment. That's, yeah. that's love, you know? Uh, yeah. I would, I would actually say like at least half of our crew was, was from the Bay area just because, you know, we had involved like some, like Tim had mentioned some of those key people, um, Patrick and, and Scott and Nick, and, and they had people that they knew who really wanted to work on it. So it was like us bringing that together is the dedication is, is bonkers for sure. And, just to follow up, you know, with, with what Tim is saying, um, 
really, like really and truly, you could feel that. You could feel that on set that nobody felt like they were that they were a part of someone else's passion project. It felt like we were a family and that we were all doing this passion project together. But, but there is slight irony that Tim said that he's always had the cardinal rule of not working on anyone else's passion project. He's the director and creative. I'm the producer. I should have been the one to think of that where I was doing <laughs> the exact opposite. I was like, holy shit, I want to do Star Wars so bad. I always want to do Star Wars, and I don't care. I want to make a Star Wars short film. Well, you, uh, but, but, let, me, uh, <laughs> let me re-quote you, Alec. You actually just said that uh, I said no one should work on someone else's passion project. It's no one else oh, should work right, on anyone sorry, else's sorry. IP. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Yeah. I, I, I didn't mean to say that. Yeah, intellectual property. My, my feeling, though, was just, you know, there's always been Star Wars Star Wars fan films, and I we wanted to do something together that was unique and a little bit different than the others, but also just a really, really cool story. Yeah, I think that that's something that can't be overstated, right? And I'd love to know, too, look, this is one thing for professionals to give up some time to work on a passion project, and no one's discounting that, but at the same time, these are all Star Wars fans as well. And so, Tim, let me throw this your way to begin with. From your perspective, what is it about Star Wars, Star Wars fandom that causes people to drive hours on the weekend for a couple of hours of shooting time to work on a film that takes over two years to complete? It's got to be the representation of humankind's greatest artistic achievement. Now, I would look back, you know, hundreds of years ago before you had cameras, art forms back then were paintings, art forms were sculptures, art forms were you know, stage plays, uh, Shakespearean stage plays, stuff like that. You put all that together, you get films. And so now these art forms, you, you, you don't have to go to a Shakespearean stage to see a play. These are brought to the world, you know, and now the population of Earth is like 7 billion people who can see this stuff overnight. And it's incredible. It's a, an incredible testament to human culture, what we can achieve technologically. But our, I think, Overall, our mythology, our modern mythology has become Star Wars, and it speaks to so many people on so many different levels, um, and I think guys and girls alike, you know, it doesn't matter where you come from or who you are, it, Star Wars just hits a chord. <clears throat> and like what Alec was saying is, yeah, all these guys were professional, you know, you know Nick has directed a couple commercials of his own, um, but they, he was also saying, I remember Nick saying, uh, something pretty funny. He was like, yeah, I mean, I was shooting a shoe commercial. How fun is that? I'm like, yeah, I get, you, I get your point. So you can get paid to shoot a, a shoe commercial for, you know, Foot Locker, I think it was. Or, hey, you can come, you can come work for free. We're going to go to the desert, have a blast, and we're going to make some Star Wars stuff. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, it, that's, it's kind of a no-brainer to be like, yeah, let's do that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let me ask this, Alec, from your perspective, you know, I think that one of the first times I actually paid attention to this is upon my, my first viewing of The Last Jedi and sitting in the theater trying to process everything as the credits are rolling. And my goodness, there is just name after name after name after name that they were part of creating this film. I mean, to a point where at some point the entire screen was filled with like size eight font and it was just still continuing <laughs> to show how many people were involved in this right. process. And so from your perspective, 
what is it like to produce something like this, even though it's on a smaller scale, but having to, I guess, compensate for all the people, all of the necessities of making everything go smoothly, compensating for things that are unforeseen? What What is that process like? I was, it was challenging, but not, not challenging in the way that I, I think most might think. Everyone involved, and we've kind of beat a dead horse in this, everyone involved really did want to be involved. And so it was never like a you know, dragging, dragging the kids to church type thing. Um, it, it was what made it difficult from my perspective as a producer, it was uh, a matter of, of logistics. Okay. So if you're looking at production, for instance, it's okay. We've got to determine in the script, how many days we need to spend here. You know, we, we've got, we've got a schedule we need to get. Also we're shooting in places where the temperature is give or take a hundred degrees We've got a six-year-old kid with us. Um, so there's, there's just the challenges of um, managing those things where you don't have a budget. I mean, Tim and I were putting our own money into this. This didn't have a budget. No one gave us money. So we're looking at our – I'm looking at my experience as a producer and what I would do on any other production and, and, and then figuring out ways, creative ways to say, okay, well, we can't pay for this. We're not going to have a craft service table and, and catering. But, you know, we can rent, we can rent a, you know, 15 passenger van, we can get some snacks from Target or, you know, Ralph's, and then we can have, you know, PA or me as a producer go to like a local restaurant and, or, you know, so those types of logistical things. Um, and then in, in post-production, it's, it's a different type of wrangling. As a producer, you have to rely on your people I had amazing people to rely on. Patrick Lemberg, who was our first AD during the production, was much more of a post-production supervisor, and, uh, and, and Nick as well. He did some additional editing, our DP. So that became a, a matter of you know, just constant communication and, and trying to find times where these individuals had the ability to work time into it. There's also just the logistics of you know, you can't do this until you do that. Right. So like, you know, you need to, you know, lock your, your picture, have certain things locked in before you can do some of the minor special effects that we had, or mm-hmm. excuse me, visual effects that yeah. we had because we tried to keep most of it extremely um, practical. And, and then, you know, doing, doing the color correction at the end, um, Matt Osborne from the mill, who's an incredible colorist. Um, I mean, that would have cost us, thousands and thousands of dollars, but again, amazing group of people at the mill and him who agreed to do it for free to really lock in that final color to make it look the way it did. So it was just, it was just a matter of, of relying on people. Producers, really a good producer is someone who can just trust the people that he brings on and bring on the best people and, you know, allow them to do their thing. Cause really I don't do anything. I just, <laughs> I just bring people together and, and, and uh, you know, try to keep people motivated and, and try to steer the ship in the right direction um, and let people like Tim and the rest of the, the group play in the sandbox and be incredible creatives. Part of, that, part of that was definitely – it did work to our benefit that we did not have the constraint of time or a schedule. Um, so people could work on this when they had the time but also allowed them to do it in a relaxed state, I would say. So they weren't stressed and trying to pump out something just to meet a deadline that wasn't as good as they could do. Um, and the other thing was, 
as a director and, you know, Alec, uh, as a producer, everyone was working for nothing. So what was the point of being like a, a, a whip cracking kind of, you know, dominant personality? <laughs> we, I think the attitude was basically, Hey, let's, let's all jump in a van. Yeah. Let's grab some snacks. Let's yeah. go camping. Let's basically go camping. Wow. Let's have a blast. And while we're out there, let's make a Star Wars short. Because that was really the attitude. We had so much fun everywhere we went. You know, uh, Patrick yeah. was so awesome with my son. Um, I, I basically let him take over a lot of the uh, directing responsibilities when it came to Xander. Um, because Xander just got along with him. And, you know, it was one less thing I had to do, uh, aside from also being his father. <laughs> um, so, so Patrick, was he was so amazing. They just had a, a blast rolling down the, the sand dunes and having so much fun. Um, and another thing I wanted to touch on was so many people worked on this that I only met a couple of them for the first time at the screening up in wow. uh, 3210. Wow. It was the first time I met these guys. And I'm like, guys, thank you so much. I know who you are. I know of you. I've never met you in person. Um, and some of them were the, uh, the, the 3D modelers who built the, um, the ship. And the other thing I want to say about that was I had ideas. But in order to get people to do things creatively, you have to – like I was saying before about you know, being kind of a mule and just being a clay pusher, that's, that's not inspiring at all as an artist. It's like it's just a job. It is just a job. So with these guys, I said, look, I'm going to back up and go, this is sort of what I want, but I want you to have, uh, have fun, have a good time making it. You know, be creative. Do your own thing. And yeah, it it totally shows. They had a blast. They ended up making this. You know, I said, "Hey, put the, you know, spoiler, put Jabba's skiff or Jabba sail barge and the skiff together and make something cool." So you know, th- the three of the guys that were doing the the model um, uh, ended up just kind of making this thing on their own. I'm like, "Hey, it looks awesome." You know, I didn't I didn't critique it afterwards. I didn't I didn't go back to make changes. To me, it's like if it looks good the first time and they're happy with it, then you've got something good. There's no point in change. I mean, I experience this so much. It's so frustrating. Making changes just to justify your position that you're in. You know, this is this is why so many characters and even films nowadays are muddled down because it's it's really justifying someone's position, their job. Um, well, I have to make a change because I'm a producer. Yeah. Well, that and and that that that's interesting because that makes me think too, of going back to your question about you know our our group and and how you manage all of that. In a project like this, you know everybody has to wear multiple hats. You know I I'm accustomed to like being a producer on sets where it's like everyone has their job I and mean, you hear, hear the expression you know stay in your lane or you have one job. Whereas right, right. Like, <laughs> in this type of thing, everybody is wearing multiple hats. Um, you know, Dan Bowman, who was, who was the, the body who was inside the, um, the OTK, um, costume and who, who did all of the physical acting, who's incredible. He was a huge part of this project. I mean, I, I Tim mentioned this, but he actually helped Tim build the set, the, the, we built it in his garage. Yeah. So he, he donated his, this garage, this giant garage that has like 15 or 20 cars in it. And that's in Burbank, and that's where we, we set up that set. Um, but he was also just a big part in wearing other hats. My, my brother Ian, who wrote the screenplay, was on set a few times as the script supervisor. And 
providing a lot of other insight throughout the process. You know, we mentioned, we mentioned Nick, our DP, also did some editing and was a big just technical help in the post-production process. So there's well, so it, many it, even, people. It's like, it, even the small things, like Nick is the one who drove the van out to Death Valley, you know? Yeah. So yeah, Nick was a DP, and, also the driver, also this, also that. Yeah, my and, my uh, my assistant at the time, you know, Demetra, she she was like a production assistant, but then she also helped him with with some makeup and you know. So all of that to say that everyone involved, I think that's really how it worked. Is you we I think we put people we tried to put people in an environment where they're not only making a Star Wars film, but not like oh you you agreed to this. So suck it up, Buttercup. It wasn't like that. You know? <laughs> right, it was, right. It was more like we were like really happy to be there, and and the way you manage that is is by doing your best to make it a family, a family film environment, and then you have to trust people that will will step up when we need to step up and do the different things. Whether it's you know Tim and I walking across the desert with hundred degree weather, pulling a you know a, a I don't know what the hell that thing was called, but. Um, with a bunch of equipment on it, rolling it across dunes. I mean, we all kind of did what we had to do, but in a way that it made it feel like we were really a film family. I love that. And I don't think there's any substitute for that. Let, let me ask this though, because you know we've come to a point with social media and the interwebs and all those things where everybody can be a critic, whether they have the expertise to do that or not. And here you guys are sacrificing family time, going to the desert and shooting locations all over, over the course of two years to do this passion project. And so what do you as creatives, as creators, what do you do when there are comments and hopefully they've been very minimal, if any, for this particular project, but what do you do as a creator when the comments aren't giving you maybe the, the props that you deserve for pouring two years or your life and soul, your bank account into a project such as this? Uh, can I go first, Tim? Yeah. Um, so Devin, you kind of teed me up for something I brought up earlier. Uh, so I, in general, understand the rule or the, the, the general rule of don't look at the comment section. I think we all have heard that before. Right. Uh, in, in a world of trolls, especially Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like you, you should try to abide by that, but like, I'd be lying to you if I told you I didn't look at the comment section. Yeah. I, I absolutely have. And, and I think what has been for me, and I never, I never saw this coming, but what for me has been one of the best accomplishments, uh, things I'm most proud of is something that I, I learned through the comment section. So, and, and bear with me here because this is something that me and my brother were just talking about the other day. He asked me a question like, you know, how does it make you feel when you see things that are really, really positive but they also like trash the newer films, you know, how, how does that make you feel like, how do you react to that? And what it made me think of is initially our group and how we talked about at the very beginning of this interview, how Tim and I, though we both love star Wars disagree on certain things. And then I looked at our core group and I realized that we're all like that. We all love star Wars, but there's, we've gotten into so many debates sober and otherwise um, <laughs> about, our, <laughs> our our love for Star Wars and the things that we we uh, don't like or or one person likes and doesn't. And when I started looking at the comments, one of the things I noticed overwhelmingly is that whether you were a fan, 
whether you're a fan of the, the new Star Wars or the prequels or just the original trilogy and you hate everything else, it seemed to be overwhelmingly that, that fans really, really, really loved this and said, even though we, didn't, we know we didn't make a perfect film, it felt like Star Wars. And, and that's kind of the, the thing I got out of this is that we as a group came together not all agreeing on everything about Star Wars, but we all agreed on this story and how great it was and how excited we were to share it. And then a byproduct of that, at least up to this point, because it's just been out just, it's just over a week now, and it, it's, you know, I'm sure it will get more views, but we're, we're seeing at least right now that people seem to really, really love it or have a really positive reaction, and that is that it feels like Star Wars. So if we were able to do that as a group, I think maybe we were also able to unite in, in a small way. I'm not trying to sound like profound here, but at least in a small way, create a fan film that united Star Wars fans and saying, hey, we really like this, even though we disagree on other things. Hopefully that made sense. I kind of <laughs> rambled yeah, a bit. I, I initially chose to do the story of a background, the backstory of a background character. Um, because me personally, I was really just kind of over all of the lightsabers and the force and the Sith and the Jedi and all that stuff. To me, it was just, it was just beaten to death. I was just kind of, just just kind of over it. Damn, people are driving off the road. They're driving (laughs) off the road listening to this right now. Well, I mean, but that's not what Star Wars is about. It's not, it's not about lightsabers. I mean. You know, I, I rewatched the first movie the other day. I was telling Alec and, well, A New Hope. Um, and when Luke Skywalker receives his lightsaber, he doesn't know what it is. He doesn't even know what the force is. You know, Obi-Wan had to explain to him what the force was. So here's a kid who knows nothing about it. And for me, it was like those really are just kind of sidebars to what what's important about Star Wars. And what's important about Star Wars was it's it's a gang of friends who come across adversity and it's really the adventure of it. That's the fun part. It wasn't just people, you know, flinging uh, uh, lightsabers around everywhere. So that's when I I decided to do something on a character that we'd seen, but was very, very, very brief, um, you know, in in the movie. Tim, Tim, that's what, that's what Luke was trying to tell you in the last Jedi. It's not about the Jedi and lightsabers, man. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, you know, for me, we're going back talking about the comments on, um, you know, YouTube, and they've been actually very, very awesome. They've been super sweet. Um, they're really coming from people who love, you know, uh, Star Wars as a whole. And, you know, some, you know, some people make some funny comments and stuff like that, but nothing really overwhelmingly negative. Uh, some technical, you know, qualms they have with what we've done. But again, it's a short film and it's, it wasn't perfect. Um, it's just, it's kind of just showing our love. And I think that's kind of what we've got from generally most of the public. Um, they've left fantastic comments and that's really what's made me the, the proudest. And a lot of people have picked up on the, the small nuances of what I was trying to achieve as a filmmaker, which was, it wasn't about special effects. It wasn't about flashy this, it wasn't about showcasing any of the work that I've done as far as like costumes, although those have been great, you know, greatly uh, appreciated. 
that wasn't the point. The point was I wanted to create a story where you felt for this little boy and you felt something for this other character, this very fatherly Android character. And these were the, you know, I expressed this to Alec and, and these guys two, two and a half years ago, that was the point of what we were doing was to make a good film. Star Wars was just the backdrop. Um, yeah, and, so and, and, sorry, and, and, I, and I don't mean to cut you off, but just to, to dovetail on that, and you can pick that back up. When, when Tim brought up the story originally, I think the reason why it was so profound to me is there was something that I had felt that I never knew how to express. Because when I saw Return of the Jedi the first time, I didn't understand why when the Rancor died, I didn't understand why I felt sorry. You know, of course, you know, his Malachili comes up and he cries. We didn't know his name at the time, but he, he's sad. But I, I didn't understand because this is a beast. This is a monster which is trying to kill the hero. And yet I felt something for him and I felt something for his, his keeper. Um, and if you watch toward the, at the end of the credits, there's a little bit of callback to George Lucas talking about that. Um, but, but that to me is what was profound is it was that feeling and that this story was like a call to that, like, oh, my God. And it was such a small thing, three seconds of the film. So anyway, sorry, Tim, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, let, me, let me go back to what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Alec loves to do that. Alec likes to call it dovetail. I call it derail. <laughs> oh, loves loves to derail my train of thought. Can you imagine? Um, can you imagine us talking about Star Wars together? It's so fun. Uh, so that I mean that was basically you know like Alec was saying. Um, I chose this story and I I developed that the backstory of this character because the same thing when I saw Return of the Jedi as a seven year old and you know Luke Skywalker is just trying to stay alive. And he basically kills he kills someone's pit bull, and it's it's just a dumb animal that doesn't know what it's doing. It's been abused. Hey, hey, hey! I have a pit bull. It's been trained. <laughs> it's been trained. I mean, that's just what it does. Mm. And when it when it makes that whimper as it dies, I remember getting very emotional. Yeah. So the point of this was I wanted to have people feel some sort of emotional response to what we were making. And a lot of the comments were exactly that, like, oh, man, we, I love this OTK character. He's fantastic. We want more of that guy. Bring him back. You know, that's on there several times. Um, and I feel really achieved by that. Wow, we didn't just do a flashy look at this kind of, you know, special effects, uh, you know, showcase. It was more like, hey, check out these characters. Um, several people said, oh, man, I will never see Return of the Jedi the same way. I will never see the Malik." Malakili character the same way and, and I, I was telling Dan I'm like damn that is exactly what I wanted you know this is what we were trying to do as filmmakers was to really connect the, the, the viewer with the emotional message you're trying to put across with these, these minor characters that you'd know nothing about until the very end you know well, yeah and I, I mean I, I, shed a, I shed like a slight a slight tear when I saw a few comments and, and, you know, we know that this is not actually going to happen, but when you see a, a fan saying, I consider this canon now, you know, like Disney, <laughs> this is canon. Yes. When you, when you read things like that, you're, right. a filmmaker, you're just like, Oh, Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's gotta be the highest form of compliment. Right. And I think that one of the things, many of the things, but certainly one of the things that you guys did so well was you found this little nuanced part of the story that we all have some familiarity with and you just wove together this beautiful tale that fit in so naturally. And I know it may sound a little corny to use this uh, phrase with a, with a Star Wars uh, 
conversation, but it was, it was, it was very much like mom's home cooking. It just felt good. It felt right. Oh, I love that. That's a great term. So let me ask you guys this. It's out. It's, it's been well received by fandom. Is it time to exhale? Are the wives glad to see you again? Are you ready to begin the next adventure? What, what's going on now? Uh, yes. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, I, Tim and I, uh, and Ian and the other guys, like we, we've definitely talked about doing more. Um, right now, right now, um, me, Tim and Ian are, are developing a, a feature film that's different than Star Wars. So that's a big thing for us, but also, you know, we very, very much want to continue this within our schedules. I mean, originally it was like, Hey, let's do multiple shorts. And, and, you know, money's always a thing when, when it comes to these types of things. So, you know, I think we're going to kind of see where this takes us, but I definitely know that Tim and I, we, there are definitely additional stories that we want to tell. I'll say that. Well, that's great. We have something to look forward to then. Let me ask you this. As, as we kind of get ready to land the shuttle here, let me ask you guys this. If, if something were to happen and you were to get a phone call from somebody at Disney and say, hey, look, guys, we're, we're looking at releasing the ultimate box set of every Star Wars film from 77 to present in one complete set. Now's the time. If you would make any edits or changes to the films, what would you do? So I guess, Tim, let me throw this your way first. If you had the opportunity to change one thing within canon, one thing within a film, what, what would that one thing be? Oh, man. Uh, well, I will say this. I was disappointed when I saw The Force Awakens because Boba Fett did not come back. And I, I think there's an enormous Star Wars population that wants to see that character come back. It, it's even down to like Robot Chicken where they were making, you know... <laughs> joke videos of how he went out like a bitch and it's like man everybody I, I really think everybody feels that that character needed it needed to come back um and you know even though i worked on you know this the the news tv show it's not about boba fett um so i was not you know pleasantly surprised to see him come back um spoiler alert I, I, yeah i, I mean Jeez, Tim, way to just ruin everybody's <laughs> It's Yeah, it's not about Boba Fett, and I, I wish they would. I wish they would touch on that. There's tons of artwork and books and comics. Uh, that's just a fan favorite, and, and they really need to bring that back, and, and maybe a side film or just a continuation or something. I don't know. Yeah, as someone that went all in with Captain Phasma uh, fever before The Force Awakens and then saw that character meet her demise in a less than spectacular way, believe me, I'm, I'm with you with that. Um, Alec, how about you? Where, where do you stand on this? Is there something that you would change within canon? Well, I, I, my, mine's, I'll say mine's a little bit different. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of Star Wars fans who uh, don't like the prequels have, you know, a lot of the same talking points. Um, my biggest issue with the prequels is, is, even though, yeah, Jar Jar Binks and some of that stuff, Minicorians, but um, the story of Darth Vader is the original, like, Walter White Breaking Bad story. And, and I think the biggest missed opportunity there that I would love to see, I don't know how you do this, but um, to really show, you know, Anakin's rise to, or his rise and his fall in a way that, 
Oh man, I don't know, I don't know how to explain it. I just felt like that's the thing that leaves me the most empty as a Star Wars fan because there are things about the prequels that I do enjoy, um, but but that to me was, is the most heartbreaking and feel like it's it's a, a, a was a missed opportunity as far as canon is concerned. Um, and and I know you're going to let us go, but there there were two. By the way, just two quick things that I wanted to mention because we didn't chat about them. <clears throat> I'll let Tim mention the second one really quick, but. One thing I have not seen any fans mention yet in watching the film is uh, that we really thought was a cool little like Easter egg um, kind of nerdy thing to do in this film. At the beginning of the film, OTK is speaking another language and eventually Big Boss tells him to stop speaking that filthy language. Um, the idea there, even though we didn't call to it specifically, is that he was speaking Bachi as a callback to A New Hope. And what's even cooler about that is that we wrote when, when Ian wrote the script and him and Tim were working on it together, the whole thing was written in English or basic if you're a Star Wars nerd. And we knew and Tim knew we wanted to do that in Bocce, but we didn't know if Bocce was an actual written language. We couldn't find it. So we talked to Steve Bloom, um, amazing, amazing human being, being one of my uh, close friends who did the voice of OTK. And we asked him, like, hey, can you help us with this? So he called Pablo Hidalgo to ask him if he knew if, you know, if it was a written language. And Pablo told him that it, it wasn't, but he gave him some guidance. And then Steve went and basically did a full translation of the script wow. using like different Star Wars dialects. What? He created himself. Oh, my gosh. So, so, so through Steve and you know, the direction of, of Tim, we were able to create Bocce, and I, I think that's so cool. And and the other thing, I'm uh, Tim. Just to uh, shout out to the OTK and what that what that is. So let me let me explain the origin of the name OTK. And it was one of those things where there's R2D2, C3PO, and a lot of you know the great sounding, great sounding names that did, didn't seem like they had a, a meaning behind it. But growing up, like with Nick and the things we talked about at the very beginning of this podcast was that we were all fans of the original trilogy. We were all original trilogy kids. Oh, my. So OTK is original trilogy kid. I love it. When are you guys going to start selling shirts, trademarking that? That's a seller right there. <laughs> so great. Well, and so let me ask this because this actually brings up something else. One of the things I noticed within the film is you seem to be very specific about not using what we would see as traditional uh, – cast member names, character names. So what's kind of the philosophy behind just using more like titles than actual character names? Right. Well, the thing about that was if, if, if we used, if we used Malakili, people would know who he was. So, you know, OTK refers to him as little sir. And some people have picked up, but big boss is not his mother. We don't know who she is. I've kind of speculated, well, maybe she's a slave owner. Maybe he's a slave. You know, that's not expressed. I think not everything has to be spoon fed to people. I think there should be something that people can come up with themselves and kind of put together. So, so part of that was that she's not called, he never calls her mom. And that was a very uh, conscious decision we made early on. Um, Cause there was a line uh, basically where OTK said, well, you came from her implying that that was his mother. But then I changed it saying, no, let's, Let's go back to being a little bit more androgynous. We don't know who she is or where she comes from. So he refers to her as Big Boss, which is 
very not maternal. Um, and OTK refers to him as little sir, because he is kind of the robot's owner, but it also gives us that sort of cloud of mystery as to who the hell this kid is. <clears throat> and we never ever use his name until the credits in the very end. Wow. So, creative. so that's basically up to the star Wars fans to, to realize who that is, you know? Well, guys, you did such great work. Congratulations on this. Thank you for hanging out with us and giving us a little peek behind the curtain of Birth of a Monster. Thank Thank you so much, man. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having us on. Absolutely, guys. Thank you for your time. Listen, if you haven't already seen Birth of a Monster, head on over to YouTube, search Birth of a Monster, and there you will see the products and fruit of Tim and Alec and their entire cast and crew's labor of love. That's going to do it for this time on Star Wars on Tap, my little tauntauns. As always, you can swing on by unmistakablystarwars.com for our complete show lineup and archive, including some blog articles. We'll see you next time in the digital docking bay, my little tauntauns. And until then, may the force be with you.